Hi everyone, welcome to Potluck Food Talks. Today we have a special guest, Molly Gore. She used to be a food journalist. Now she's kind of like a satirist and activist. Hi Molly, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. The topic we wanted to talk today is about dairy. You have like a, a special thing <laughs> towards dairy. Is that the reason why you moved to the Basque country? Um, about 95% of the reason, yeah. Could you explain us why that is? What is it so special about Basque dairy? Oh my gosh. Well, okay. So I think for me, it's funny. I said yes to this idea of talking about dairy because I had, you know, of course, it's not the full reason I moved here, but I did have this moment when I was visiting, you know, a year ago before I came and I walked past the milk vending machine in Plaza Ayazo in Donosti. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, actually, I didn't know what it was. You explained this to me and I've been living here for five years and you were like, you don't know what this is? It's the best thing in Donosti. I've never used them, actually. You just go and you just press the button and you put your mouth under it and you just kind of let it, you know. Just, <laughs> just drink from it. <laughs> you get a, a milk bath in the middle of the street. Nice. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. It's this small little kind of like kiosk vending machine in Plaza Eazo that's fresh milk. And so you can bring a bottle or you just pay 50 cents for, you know, a liter bottle. And I think it's just a euro 60 for a liter and like half of that for a half liter. And it's fresh milk. And the farmers come down, they fill it every morning and then they take the excess away at night. So they milk the cows at like 4.30 in the morning, bring the milk down at 7 a.m. There's fresh milk in the vending machine and you go down and get your milk. Yeah. I didn't know anything about this. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. You know, and then it's just like there's like a sharpied sign on it that's like, yo, you know, if anything's wrong here, just call in Yaki. Yeah. And I was looking it up and I was like, I was like, oh, Yaki's like the maintenance guy. It's the farmer. And so I think... It sounds like the city sort of like half subsidized this, but it's mostly direct sales right to the farmers. And so it's their way of trying to like kind of keep up the small, you know, small farming standard by eliminating, you know, a lot of the kind of middle brokerage and just supporting farmers more directly, which sounds like it's working because it's been around for a while. But yeah, to me, that's dreamy. Are there like any other dairy products you're, you're a fan of here in the Basque country? Because I mean, if you ask me about it, I would say, first of all, Iliasawal cheese. Yeah, I know. Which is a, an, an amazing sheep milk cheese. Yeah. And the cheesecake, of course, which I'm addicted to. Of course. <laughs> so here's the thing. You're going to be so disappointed. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I like cheese, but I'm not fanatical about cheese, I think, in the way some people are. And of course, you know, you talk about dairy in the Basque country and you, you have to talk about cheese, right? It's so, it's so woven into the dairy culture here. And I think what, you know, especially romanced me is like coming from the U.S., you know, and I was, I was born in the 80s. And so I grew up in the era of like drinking, you know, our parents gave us skim milk, you know, like non-fat milk, because everyone was afraid of fat because the sugar lobby basically convinced everyone that fat was the bad thing, not the sugar. So they could sell more Coca-Cola and, you know, the whole capitalist disaster. And so, you know, I grew up in like with all these kind of anemic, like super industrial dairy products and then moved to California. And our side sort of equivalent, I think, in... California to like what's happening here is the Nicasio Valley. And it's mostly, you know, farms, people came over a hundred years ago from France, from Italy, from Europe, and basically started up a cheesemaking tradition there. 
And it's, you know, it's a beautiful place to do it because A, the climate is temperate year round. So there's milk production year round and there's like an extraordinary amount of microclimates. And so you have this local variation in the cheeses, which is really interesting. But there, you know, like America is in this great and horrible moment of trying to reclaim its food soul after the Industrial Revolution destroyed it. (laughs) So when we have those moments, like in the U.S., there's a lot of small producers who are kind of trying to reclaim old traditions like that, right? And then coming here and having this sense of, especially in the Basque country, there's been such um, a sense of preservation, right? It's like the traditions have been held onto so tightly and have been preserved so strongly, even in the face of so much attempted, you know, assimilation and like all of these different forces coming in and trying to overtake Basque country and the, the language and the, you know, everything. Actually, the cheesecake is like uh, invading species. Can you say that? An invasive species? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not something from here and it's like a new tradition. It's about 20 years old. So like the really conservative people say like, ah, that's that's not really Basque. Where did that come from? Is that a, was it an American thing? No, 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 because it's completely different than American cheesecake. It is. Yeah. I don't know what the origins are. I know that Suberoa made a, a first cheesecake in the late 80s or 90s. Yeah. And La Viña in the mid 90s. So, so it's something relatively new. Ah, uh, yeah. Another dessert that I thought of that is probably more your style is the Mamiya. Have you tried that? I have tried Mamiya. Yeah. Because it's just curded milk, right? With honey. That's it. Yeah, that's it, right? And then they, there's like, they'll do walnuts or a little bit of honey on top. Yeah, but that, those are the toppings. The dessert as such is just the curd. And this says a lot about like Basque food culture. They're really trying towards flavors that could appear plain to foreigners, but they're actually, they, they have their own complexity. Right. And in many times it's, it's a lot about the texture and not, not, not just the aroma. And in this case, you just want to explore the milk aromas. Like also in the Basque country, it's the only place I've seen like in fine dining restaurants where they serve milk ice cream, just milk ice cream. Mm, I haven't had that yet. Yeah, you can find it in Bodegón Alejandro, for instance. They have a really good one. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the thing that struck me about the mamia was the texture. Right? I tasted it and I was like, oh, it's just curd. <laughs> like nothing going on here except the milk. But yeah, there is a real sort of like delightful simplicity and freshness to it, which does feel very, very Basque. And uh, I like finishing a meal with a mamia because it's super light. You know, it's like you're just having a curd and it cleans your mouth. Yeah. I like cheesecake more. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Do you have any interesting like anecdote that you have experienced around the world of dairy? curds and milk and cheese yeah i i think i have one (laughs) i think it was probably my second week here i you know and i moved here with very basic spanish and zero basque and um constantly working on it but i went to the grocery um this like tiny little very basque grocer near me and i was just going to pick up a bottle of milk and so i go to the dairy section you know i'm looking around and there's you know, something that looks like milk in a milk bottle in the bottom shelf and it has a picture of a sheep on it. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, sheep's milk. I like sheep's milk. I'll get the sheep's milk. So I get the sheep's milk and I take it home. And the first thing I do is I make tea with it, right? And that's that's like mostly, that's where most of my milk goes, is like on my oatmeal or in my tea. And, <laughs> and I drank my tea that day and it tasted really burnt. 
And this was confusing, but it was also really concerning because this was like in the thick of a wave of COVID. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Everyone's talking about how it messes up your taste. And I was like, oh my God, I have COVID. My tea tastes burnt. And so the next day, the same thing happened. And by that point, I, you know, it occurred to me, I should probably look at the milk. And so I looked at it and it was all in Basque and I translated the Basque and it was milk for cuajada, but it was extra burnt flavor. You know, because I guess there's, you know. Yeah, they, they do this like with a red gluing hot iron. They put it inside the milk. Yeah. And it generates this burnt, like in the, in the best case, caramelized flavors, like kind of like in a toffee direction. Yeah, in this case, it tasted maybe like a little bit even more synthetic. I don't know how they did it, but it was just very burnt tasting milk. Burn aroma, basically, in drops. <laughs> that was my hazing moment as a foreigner in the store. We couldn't use it, I didn't have COVID, but I learned about what cojado was at that moment. <laughs> when done properly, burning milk is something really delicious. And it's, uh, it's something really traditional also here in Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that inspired me to try to make cojada, actually, which I don't. I haven't tried it yet, but I was like, ooh. Me neither, to be honest. I, I've known that in, uh, I think in Aquilarre or in some Michelin star place, it was probably Aquilarre many years ago, they would curd it in front of you. Like they, they would bring the liquid milk and put the curd and then perhaps you eat two more courses and at the end of the dinner it was, yeah, quite gelatinized. Oh, we should go eat some of that. <laughs> well, that's a, a super expensive place. I haven't been there, actually, uh, to Aguilar. It's, it's one of the big classics of the city. Uh, yeah, I haven't been either. What about non-food application? Have you discovered any other things done with milk uh, besides taking a milk bath in the street of San Sebastian? Rubbing cheese on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I like some good oils in there, actually. But no, I mean... Yeah, you know, I do like yogurt masks on my face sometimes, things like that. But I know there's some interesting stuff you can do with whey, though. A lot of people doing like vodka and this kind of things uh, using whey instead of, of water. Really? And it generates a completely different flavor profile. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. And I, I I even saw once, this wasn't like in a in a kitchen lab, they would put like just a tiny bouquet of sheep's hair mm -hmm. inside the bottle. So, that, you know, that sometimes you have like a flower or a herb. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was sheep. <laughs> What's the purpose of that? I guess showing where it comes from, probably communicating. <laughs> so this is whey-based booze. I should I do that with my own hair in my cooking sometimes, actually, <laughs> just so people know who made it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> to put your uh, identity in and your stews, <laughs> my DNA. What about in your daily work as a satirist and activist? <laughs> Have you found like any inspiration, like in the Basque dairy system. Oh, inspiration. Mm. Well, okay, here's an interesting connection. You know, oh gosh, I'm going to forget their name. But when Napoleon's armies were coming through, there was the way that the sheep herders hid themselves by like hiding under the pelts. And then I think that's how they could like organize and coordinate ambushes and stuff like that. But to me, it's really interesting because our work a lot of the time is about shape-shifting and satire and pretending to be the enemy. And like we, in short, we a lot of the times will like prank giant oil companies or governments to hold them accountable for doing bad things, which is like an old kind of even mythological sort of 
way of interacting with power. And so I, whenever I see this out in the world, like the ways that the, like underdogs have shapeshifted or disguised themselves or sort of like played with the rules of the game in order to shift the power dynamics, I find it super, super interesting. And so when I saw that, that story about the sheep herders, I was like, oh, here's another it's happening again. <laughs> I saw a super nice video from Basque Shepherds, like explaining their, their day-to-day life. Wait, wait, wait. And they have like this ancient walls that are probably thousands of years old. Yeah. And they still use them today. And they were the, the shepherds talking about like, yeah, this is our heritage. We don't even know who built these walls and how old are they. And we've been using them for centuries, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. What has been your experience with the food system, sustainability practices in the Basque country in general, like in comparison with food systems in America and the United States? What's been interesting to me is that there's not as much like obvious transparency. Like in the U.S., we're sort of because because we went through this horrid kind of industrial period and then had this reckoning starting, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago when everyone realized how all of the goodness had been bred out of our food and, you know, how much it's so, so preserved and toxically overloaded. And, you know, all the life has been like bred and boiled out of it, you know? And, and so now there's sort of this movement to assure the public of the provenance of where their food is coming from. So there's like huge strides towards letting people know what, you know, towards transparency, at least on, you know, for the folks who are really interested in that. And here, I don't think because there hasn't been the same legacy, there hasn't been a need, right, to do all of this kind of storytelling around where the food comes from, because there's this just this assumption that like, it's from right here. <laughs> it's good. It's fresh. And there's none of the same kinds of horrible industrial practices that I'm familiar with in the U.S., although I know there has been conglomeration and there is like, you know, large scale kind of stuff going on. So that's been one of the interesting things is me going to the farmer's market and asking some questions and feel very surprised at the questions because I think other folks just have a general sense of like where the food's coming from and how it's grown. And for me, I'm in the habit of wanting to know and finding out when they're, when it's not obvious to me because of where I come from. And so that's that's just been very interesting. Yeah, like I would add to that, for instance, tomato salad. That's something that, that you see in most restaurants here. But in Barnestor, there is like a, a newspaper article wall with an interview to Nestor himself. And he says like, eating raw tomato, that's something that comes from the Spaniards. <laughs> like they serve like one of the best tomato salads in town. But he admits that this is not something that you would find here, let's say, 100 years ago. That it's something that it somehow evolved at some point in the in the 20th century. And now, now it's part of the culture, just as cheesecake and as many other elements, so to say, modern elements. But when you say that tomato salad and cheesecake are the modern elements, you, you can tell that it's a really, when it comes to food, a really conservative culture, I would say. What I think about when I think about like the difference between the sort of like sustainability aspect here and in the States is just that I think... Okay, so for example, I was in, um, well, this was actually Galicia, and I was in a like little Galician seafood pub. They just did smoked fish. That was it, like little kind of tostadas of smoked fish. And I was there with a couple of people, and one of them was another American. 
from Oregon, <laughs> like along the West Coast, you know, I think we've we've all developed like a really deep sensitivity to wanting to know where things are from, right? Because that's that's the place in the U.S. that really started reclaiming good local food mm-hmm. first, I think. And it spread from like Northern California because for many years we didn't know where anything came from because, again, industrialization. So anyway, he, you know, we're in this little pub and he asked this, the, the waiter, he was like, oh, you know, I think I want how the sardines or not the sardines. It was like a monkfish or something. He's like, but um, where, where is it from? You know, is it from here? Which is classic habit question from where we're from. And the waiter kind of looks at him and he's like, I'll go ask. And he goes back, ask the chef. And then we hear some like bickering. Like we hear them kind of arguing in the kitchen and the waiter comes back and he's like, <laughs> it's like the chef wants me to tell you that he's not going to tell you where it's from, but it's good. <laughs> and he was like offended because the the assumption it's like well of course you know we talked to him more and it was like no 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 it's from right off the coast 15 miles that way but he's not going to tell you where it's from because he has his spot he has his fisherman he's been sourcing this fish okay okay that's the reason okay okay yeah yeah well, the reason was like of course like of course it's from right here but i'm not going to tell you where and so it was just this really kind of funny moment of these two cultural expectations clashing up against each other because we're used to such very different standards of, you know, food production. And so, yeah, that was funny. <laughs> well, also, uh, this reminds me of cider houses. Right. I've, I've asked, uh, and, and I know uh, for a fact that uh, most of the bone ribeye states, the chuletones. Yeah. Um, they're mostly, they come from East Europe, from Poland. Oh, really? Yeah, and the reason is that the production here is not, on a, it, it can supply the demand uh, of so many chuletones that are eaten. And same, when you see the cider barrels, there are some that have like a red apple sticker, and that means that that is made out of Basque apples. Because there are also many apples imported to produce enough cider, like, like the orchards are, are not uh, as productive enough as they were, let's say, uh, 500 years ago in the golden age of, of cider. And is that because just the way land is being used has changed around here? Or is that because the population has grown? It was probably a, a, an economical shift after the, the golden age of nautical enterprises. Yeah, because they would drink cider right. <laughs> and the ships to to avoid uh, getting scurvy. Right. Like a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Like the, this archetype of the drunken sailor is because they were drinking whatever they were drinking all the time, but it wasn't water. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Potluck Food Talks. If you like what we're doing, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok as Potluck Food Talks. The show airs every Monday.